Welcome to Alumni Voices, a podcast series from Oxford University. I'm Guy Collander and every month I speak to a former student about their days at Oxford and the impact of their studies upon their career. For this episode, I'm in Cowley, East Oxford, at the headquarters of Oxfam, a leading international development charity. I'm here to speak to Oxfam's chief executive, Mark Goldring, about a career dedicated to tackling poverty and disadvantage. We will also hear about Oxfam's links to its birthplace and its home in Oxford. Mark Goldring, thank you very much for agreeing to this interview. Good, it's a pleasure to join you. Let's begin with your studies in law mm-hmm. at Keeble College. What subjects grabbed your attention as an undergraduate? I was one of those unlikely people that knew I wanted to study law several years before I went to Oxford, but equally clearly knew I didn't want to be a lawyer. Many elements of law fascinated, but it was much more the human side than the technical side. So I enjoyed criminal law, I enjoyed penology, I enjoyed some of the elements about philosophy. Deep down I was a lousy lawyer, and uh, as I graduated my tutor said, well, you might want to think about the prison service, basically whatever you do, anything but law. Right, right. But did you find that um, background in law helpful for your career in international development? I did. And I'm still one of those strange people that read law reports sometimes, not necessarily the whole thing, but the summaries, um, and and find myself, I'm interested in those legal issues. I've never used my practical legal skills, but I have used a lot of the disciplines that I gained uh, and I think that helped me get a start in my career especially. The Oxford Committee for Famine Relief, later renamed Oxfam, began in 1942 at a meeting in the University Church. It initially focused on lobbying the government to relax the Allied blockade of occupied Europe and to ensure the supply of vital relief to civilians in Belgium and Greece. The first charity shop opened in Oxford's Broad Street six years later, Aid for Africa followed in the 1950s, and Oxfam's activities kept spreading throughout the world. What was your impression of the charity and its Oxford heritage during your student days in the 1970s? It was probably best known in those days from by me as a source of my clothes. Right, right. <laughs> Actually, that, that it still is. It Street. still is. That very shop on Broad Street and a number scattered around the town. Uh, excellent bookshops at affordable prices too. Uh, I was aware of Oxfam, but it was only really 15 years, or 10, 15 years later that I ever came back to think of Oxfam as directly related to me and my my own work. And that was when I got a job for Oxfam in the early 90s, running the country programme in Bangladesh. And just returning to your student days briefly, yeah. what else do you remember, what activities did you engage in, aside from your studies when you were in Oxford? Yeah. Well, I was heavily involved in any sport. Right. Now, my... Uh, tutorials were usually me wearing a gown over a tracksuit, which didn't go down well with my tutors who didn't think I took my subjects as seriously as I might. So I played rugby very enthusiastically and, and rode and played cricket and other things badly. I was involved with some of the international development activities, but actually the thing I remember most about the issues of poverty or deprivation from my student days were volunteering with a group of friends who were providing Saturday clubs for disadvantaged kids in and around Oxford. And what did you gain from those other aspects of your university life and how have they influenced your career and your your life beyond Oxford? Mm. 
there is one element of Oxford that meant for me that combination of confidence and humility. Now, humility because most people around me were significantly cleverer than me. Uh, confidence because it forced you to think hard and work hard. Your tutors were giving you very little help. They were giving you a reading list and saying, come up in a week's time with what you've got. Sure. And I was always stretched to keep up with the, with the work. That meant you thought, I can take on tasks, I can finish them, and I can cope. And after university, you taught as a VSO volunteer in Borneo, yeah. then spent many years working in the Pacific and Asia, including, as you've mentioned, Oxfam's country director yeah. in Bangladesh. What have you learned from your extensive time abroad about the causes of global poverty? Mm. One of the brilliant things that's really influenced my career was starting for two years as a VSO volunteer. Because what that meant was I lived on the edge of a small town in a village alongside people who were living simple lifestyle, some genuinely in poverty, uh, and helping kids who otherwise wouldn't have got access to education to do so. What that meant was I was seeing how life was for ordinary people. And that you know, is just as important as any textbook and far more, far more powerful. So what I've seen over the years is that combination that is you know, some of poverty is around people not having skills, not having opportunities. Uh, that you can help through what we've always called technical assistance, you know, training, opportunities, courses. Uh, but other parts are the way that the system actually keeps people poor. The way that trading happens, the way that taxation is or isn't collected in different parts of the world, the way that people get an opportunity or don't by virtue of uh, who they are socially de or politically determined rather than simply is it happened to be available in this area and that was that sense which is really what we've brought me back to Oxfam several times in my career of both responding to people's immediate needs and challenging the things that are keeping people poor and usually those are those are human constructs they're political constructs so challenging uh, inequality that allows the rich to prosper and doesn't give the poor an opportunity can involve everything from fair wages through to employment opportunities uh, through to discrimination just as much as it is around technical skills access to education access to health they're interlinked but that's really what I've seen over the over the years the the real generator of opportunities in most developing countries is business a lot of that business is internationally owned and where it's nationally owned a lot of the commodities that it produces are going internationally or indeed the money is being sent offshore just as soon as people can get it and many of the things we need to do to address long-term poverty are things we need to address in the rich world just as much not instead of but just as much as in the poorer countries themselves and you've been Oxfam's chief executive since 2013 and uh, much of your work has focused on the response to the war in Syria and, and also the refugee crisis there. You've seen Oxfam's relief uh, in action, emergency relief, and have commented on the creativity of your staff in difficult circumstances. What is the impact of Oxfam's work? Well, if only we only had to concentrate on Syria and surrounding countries. You know, that might have been in the news in recent months, but there's far more of Oxfam's work that goes on 
supporting people who are chronically poor than there are people in crisis. We do do both. But we're tackling long-term issues in Cambodia, in Mozambique, in Honduras. Uh, They get much less publicity. And indeed, our response in Syria, within Syria itself, which is a really difficult place to work, is one of our challenges. But just as great next door is in Yemen, where even more people are affected than in Syria by a war that most of the world don't even know is going on. So Oxfam's approach is the combination of immediate humanitarian assistance and across Oxfam we're benefiting around about 15 million people directly with humanitarian assistance every year. Then we've got the issue of long-term development. How do you help people to grow more crops, to adjust to climate change? How do you help people to get access to safe water and keep it? How do you help women to speak out and get involved in their own local district councils rather than men making all the decisions? And then you've got the more campaigning and advocacy side, which can be challenging what the government of South Africa do on their tax regime, (laughs) who they collect tax from, right through to international agencies and, of course, where it's appropriate, the British government. So that issue of immediate humanitarian, long-term development and challenging the causes is the way Oxfam works. Taken together, that's a very powerful uh, approach. But let's not overstate either the scale of Oxfam versus the scale of world poverty. Sure, sure. And in your foyer, it says we work with others. That's a primary emphasis of all your work is working with local partners and so on. Well, there's two sides to that. The first is even if you look within Britain, you know, we have 700 shops in Britain, which are one of our main sources of income. 25,000 volunteers work in those shops. They're just individuals who give a few hours a week to support Oxfam. And then you translate it to countries in the developing world where we've probably got 5,000 staff working but literally tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people looking, working for local organisations, sometimes paid, sometimes as volunteers, where Oxfam is supporting that organisation and they're the people who do the frontline work. Quite often in emergency, you'll see people in an Oxfam T-shirt, but 90% of the time, you'll actually have local people doing the work, supported by Oxfam staff, who are, of course, also primarily local people. Sure, sure. Oxfam is a remarkable charity and very influential, both in in terms of its novel approaches to international development and its sheer size. Its annual income is £400 million, 5,000 staff, as you've mentioned, 700 shops in the UK, thousands of volunteers. What are Oxfam's priorities in the years ahead? We have to respond to the growing number of emergencies around the world. Climate change is aggravating already fragile situations so there will be more natural humanitarian disasters and they'll have bigger impact. You've also got increasing levels of conflict and we've talked about Syria and Yemen as being just two of them but there are many more uh, across the world, an increasing number. So we have more displaced people than ever before. Humanitarian response is one of those priorities and of course in 2016 Syria is likely to be among the greatest of those, stretching right from Syria, within Syria itself, where 7 million people are displaced through to Calais and indeed the UK. And Oxfam's working in a range of countries in between. 
then you've got on the long term what we're really seeing is real progress in the last 20 years the world has taken 1 billion people out of extreme poverty but at the same time we see that progress being slowed and in some cases reversed by growing inequality where the increased wealth which has been created is being enjoyed by fewer and fewer people so tackling that through work on tax through work on wages, through the issues around the status of women, you know, are are the kinds of things that we're going to be giving attention to. So, you know, work, water, women, inequality, those would be the ways that Oxfam sees we bring something quite distinctive to reducing and eradicating poverty. International development has changed hugely in the last generation with an increased focus on advocacy, the role of the private sector, and less on aid. How do you expect the sector to change in the next generation? International development has never been primarily around aid, but we've often talked as if it has. You're absolutely right to say that now we're much more aware that private investment, that trade, remittances are all more important than aid many times over and in all but the poorest countries you know aid is just a little catalyst that can make a few good things happen rather than and in no place is it a replacement for those other forms of investment and are you optimistic about an end to global poverty the sustainable development goals launched in 2015 were quite clear that the world believes that in the next 20 years we can eradicate poverty we do share that there will always be some people living in poverty, but this chronic poverty, large-scale poverty, we can. Whether we do so, I think, will depend on, as well as all the technical issues and the issues we've been talking about, whether we can respond as a global society, it's not one community, to three issues in particular. Um, conflict. Most of the poorest people who get least aid and assistance and will never get commercial investment living where there's conflict and instability. Uh, corruption aggravates that. Second is climate change, which is taking more people into poverty. And the third is the growing inequality. So Oxfam's calculation is that there will be a difference of many hundreds of millions of people, more or less, living in extreme poverty in 2030, depending on whether we try and reduce the growing inequality and ensure that the poor have a greater share of the increased prosperity. So those things are the things that will really determine how far we get. But the answer is yes, we can eradicate poverty. Whether we will is going to be the combination of many, many different political decisions and the actions of citizens all across the world, organised and individually. Mark Goldring, thank you very much for sharing your experiences from your career in international development and also your student days. To listen to other Alumni Voices interviews, please visit www.alumni.ox.ac.uk.